Now, as you know, <coughs> so far, uh, this, is our, this is our doctrinal section this year and probably to the next couple of years. And uh, we're coming through, really, the, the meat of the Bible, <coughs> the things that make the Bible uh, come together and work for you. And, uh, you know, this is, the, this is what makes the Bible tick, so to speak, or makes it work for you. So we have been coming through what I told you was the seven series, and that seven series is a series of teachings that, as I said, form an interlocking grid of Bible doctrine, kind of like a safety net, uh, and it keeps you from following, following, following through and getting into a lot of heresy or a lot of bad doctrine. The Bible is, is many things, and one of the things that it most certainly is uh, is, a, is, a, is a safety net of truth. If you stay with the doctrines of the Bible, you will never get messed up on, on anything. So, so far, you know, we, we started with the seven mysteries. Uh, then we went through the seven baptisms. And last time we went through the seven judgments. And today we're going to go through the seven resurrections. Now, you're going to begin to see today, and you've already got a glimpse of this, but very much so today, how that we're going to be crossing back over some of the material. That's what the Bible, that's what all truth does. All truth will connect and cross over with other truth. Then when, when you know you've got a heresy or false teaching, when it doesn't cross over anything and it doesn't connect to anything, that's what you've got to watch out for. You're going to see today, and I'll remind you of it as it comes to my presence of mind, how that uh, each one of these that we're going to look at today will go back over something that we already looked at. And, um, you know, it's very uh, important for you to be able to see that and understand that. Uh, <clears throat> these seven resurrections in the Bible <clears throat> are, are, are key. Uh, each one of them uh, carries with it an un. Um, specified amount of truth and doctrine that will lead you other places. That's why they cross over. <clears throat> you know, as I said, all truth will go back to other truth. And, uh, you know, you take a <clears throat> teaching like the Roman Catholic Church baptism, regeneration for salvation, or the Church of Christ, or whatever. The problem with that teaching is the fact that it crosses over nowhere in the Bible. Where they tell you it crosses over, if you have any IQ of the Bible at all, you know that that's not what it's talking about. <clears throat> so, you know, you're going to find all of that through uh, the, how the truth will always cross-reference itself with other truth. And, and that's just the way that it is. And <clears throat> there are seven distinct resurrections in the Bible that you need to understand, and these will tie into <clears throat> the overall concept of the Bible. And as you build these seven series, a picture begins to emerge by Bible doctrine and Bible teaching. And that is what you want. If you learn these, which you're supposed to be, <clears throat> if you learn these and you study these and you get these down in an understandable format, uh, you'll pretty much have your Bible together by the time we get to this with everything else that you're doing. Now, the first one will be found in <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 15. <clears throat> And this will be the resurrection of Christ. In, uh, in the church at Corinth, they have a lot of issues. We know that. 
<clears throat> and by the time he gets to chapter 15, you can see the depth of <clears throat> the seriousness of their problems. Because in chapter 15, he's having to redefine for them uh, the resurrection and what the resurrection means, what it really is all about. And um, it's, uh, it's quite a lengthy uh, concept, and they have obviously lost, lost the concept of it. And the whole chapter uh, deals with that. And uh, so he says in 15.1, he says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, and wherein we stand, by which also you are saved, if we keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. And here's what he preached to them, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, all that which is received, how that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he rose again on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen of Cephas, then of the twelve, and after that he was seen of above five hundred brethren at once, of whom the greater part remaineth unto this present, but some are fallen asleep." After that, he was seen of James, and then all the apostles, and last of all, he was seen of me also as one born out of due time. Now, this is the definitive chapter for you uh, on the gospel, if you don't have that marked in your Bible. If you want to know what the gospel is, the word gospel means good news. <clears throat> and the good news of the gospel is, is the fact that Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and was buried, and then he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Notice the emphasis he puts on the Scriptures. Um, not that the belabor a point, but <clears throat> since we're talking about this on Sunday morning in Proverbs chapter 24, uh, that's not a reference to the original manuscripts. And the reason you know that is because the original manuscripts were not Scripture. Uh, the Scripture, Bible says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. The original manuscripts were not Scripture. They were not in Scripture form. And uh, so he's not talking about the originals here. He says, according to the Scriptures. So the Scriptures is the Bible that you have, and it brings back to uh, everything about Christ, his death, burial, salvation, or resurrection, has to be according to the Scriptures. Now, that may not seem like much, but when you start dealing with the Church of Christ or Jehovah Witness or uh, a Catholic or whoever, the first thing that you're going to realize is that everything they teach is not found in Scripture. So, you know, you've you got to, as we do here, and I say it all the time, you've got to stay with the book. And what he's talking about here is the fact, on down through this chapter, uh, is that the, uh, verse 16, for if the dead rise not, then Christ, uh, then is not Christ raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sins. Now, the resurrection is the, you know, most people think that the crucifixion was the key to our salvation. The crucifixion was the, um, was the process of our salvation. It's the road to our salvation. The thing that fixed our salvation wasn't him dying on the cross. <clears throat> there were two other thieves that died on the cross that day, Crucifixion was a Roman uh, form of capital punishment. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of people crucified. That's not what makes it different or special. The thing that sets it apart was the fact that he died and he did not stay dead. 
most people want to focus on the mode by which he died. That's not the issue. It's never the mode by which he died. It's the fact that he didn't stay dead. And without the resurrection, he says there in verse 16 and 17, your faith, my faith is in vain. If he didn't come out of that tomb and he didn't resurrect, then he, he didn't, uh, <clears throat> you know, he didn't, uh, he didn't accomplish anything. And that's the key. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, the Jehovah Witnesses, as the Mormons, as many of the groups, uh, is the fact that they say that Jesus Christ wasn't God. And, you know, for those of you who study the show thyself approved, and you study the scriptures, and you believe the scriptures, God always puts little fail-safe proof texts in the Bible that a Jehovah Witness or a Church of Christ or a lost person in general could never get. Now, you talk about the resurrection, and we talk about Jesus Christ being God. Here's one of these little things. In the Bible, you find, we know that God is a trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If what the Jehovah Witnesses say is true, and Jesus Christ is not God, then God had to raise him from the dead. If the Trinity is true and they're all equal, then you should find some place in the Bible where each part of the Trinity raised him from the dead. And of course, that's exactly what you have. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 10, and in Acts chapter 3, verse 26, it clearly tells you that God raised him from the dead. In John chapter 2, verse 19, it clearly tells you that Jesus raised himself from the dead. And if that wasn't enough, Romans chapter 8, verse 11 says that the Holy Spirit of God raised him from the dead. Now, that's one of the little things in the Bible that shows you that God is a trinity and Christ is equal with God. God raised him up, Christ raised himself up, and the Holy Spirit raised him up because all three are one. And so those little things put in the Bible clearly show you and me to better understand that, uh, you know, who Christ really is. And so, and there again, that's according to the Scriptures, not according to Jehovah Witness, you know, gobbledygook or Mormon's uh, talk. It, it comes from the Scriptures, clearly telling you that all three raised him up, including Jesus raising himself up. And of course, that's the key to everything in Christianity is a resurrection. And that sets, that sets in play uh, the other six resurrections, because Christ's resurrection was the first resurrection that put all the other six on a playing field. Without this one, there would, be, there would be no other. It, it, uh, it would just be simply, you know, on a screwed up mess. So, uh, and there would be no salvation, there would be no anything, because without him coming out of the tomb, that's the thing that made it a difference. Most people don't know this, but the Bible says in the book of Hebrews that uh, the devil had the keys of death and hell. And uh, he had the power over death. And the Bible says that when Christ, this is the importance of the resurrection, 
Christ, for you and me, never to die spiritually, in some cases physically, but for you and me to never die, Jesus had to get those keys away from the devil because when the devil had them, any man that died stayed dead and nothing could, because he had the keys to death. And what happened was, is that when Christ died on the cross, he resurrected, he now has the keys of death and hell and the devil lost them. By doing that, he now puts into play uh, the aspect of the other six resurrections, him being uh, the first resurrection. And of course, that's the, that's, that's the whole key to understanding what uh, he's talking about here and how that he's uh, uh, using this great concept of Christ being resurrected. Without it, there's nothing. And most people lose sight of that today. And... Uh, you know, they, uh, they, they don't focus on the fact that he, uh, he rose again. That is the whole key of it. So the first resurrection that we're gonna, we talk about is Christ's resurrection, which is everything. And you want to remember that, you know, without that, you have nothing. And so that really puts into play the rest we're going to talk about. Now, the second resurrection is also found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and that'll be found in verse uh, 23. Now, as I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he's dealing with the resurrection. And what he does is, once he establishes that Christ has resurrected, then he shows you the process of the next couple of resurrections we're going to talk about. And here's what he says. Um, verse 20, 15, 20. But now is Christ risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of them that slept. What does that mean? The first fruit is the first fruit you get off of a harvest. And he, Christ has become the first fruits of them that slept. In other words, what he's saying is Christ's resurrection was the first part of the resurrection of all the dead people. He's the first fruits of all the people that sleep who are dead. And there's that word sleep again, like we talked about, you know, Thursday night. You find it all through the Bible. And then he says this. For since by man came death, that's Adam, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. Now, <clears throat> what he's saying here is that one man, Adam, brought death to all men. Another man, Christ, who was called the second Adam, brought life to all the men, men being men and women. And the way he did that was by the resurrection. Verse 21, for since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. In other words, Christ being the first fruits of the resurrection gave the green light for the rest of the resurrection that we're going to talk about today. And where sin came into the world by Adam, the sin was taken out of the world through a resurrection of the second Adam. And uh, it's just that simple. Then he gets very specific in verse 22. For as in Adam all die, dead in trespasses of sin, so in Christ shall all be made alive. 
by the resurrection. Verse 23, but every man in his own order. Now, I'm, we're going to talk about, I'm going to give them to you now, but we're going to talk about them as we go through here. Here's the order that he gives concerning uh, the people that are saved people or, or God's people. He says, Christ, the first fruits. That'll be the Old Testament saints. That's what we're going to look at right now. Afterwards, they that are Christ at his coming. That'll be the church. That's the rapture. We're going to talk about that here in a little bit. Verse 24, then cometh the end. And the end there is the tribulation saints. So what he's saying is that the resurrection of Christ put the resurrection of man, and not all the resurrections are of people. We're going to see that here in a little bit too, um, as far as we know, people. Um, but, the, uh, but the three of these resurrections have to deal with the three people groups in the Bible that uh, Christ deals with, the Old Testament people, um, the church, and then, of course, the tribulation people all of the people who find God's righteousness in that process. So this is what he's saying. He's telling you there's an order to it. Now, we talk a lot about the uh, neo-evangelical crowd, and um, tomorrow you're going to see another piece of the puzzle of it, since we're in, I mean, Proverbs 24, just, that's just what it is. But um, this is where because they have rejected the Bible, they, they can't get any truth at all. And um, they, they would not understand verse 23. First of all, they would reject what I'm about to teach you, but themselves they could not explain it. That's, that's your first clue that you, you better stay away from somebody. I don't believe it, but I can't explain it myself. But he couldn't be right because I don't like it. And that's basically what it is. He's clearly telling you in verse 23, every man has his own order of his resurrection. And then he clearly gives the order. And the first one, the second one we want to talk about here, the first one in, in our order here, will be the Old Testament saints. And uh, the standard teaching is today, and this is true of most Baptists before, you know, and it's certainly true of the evangelical crowd is that the fact that the Old Testament people before Christ, they got saved by looking forward to the cross. And you and I get saved by looking back to the cross. And that has become the standard alibi or teaching, uh, I like the word alibi much better, for men who don't know anything about the Bible trying to explain the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and they want some common thread that pulls it all together. Obviously, the common thread between the Old Testament and the New Testament will be grace and faith. You find it in operation in both, both scenarios, the Old Testament and the New Testament. But what that grace and that faith, or that faith is in is two different things. And uh, the reason I know that they're not saved in the Old Testament, uh, the way they are uh, in the New Testament, is the fact that they didn't go to the same place when they died. That ought to be your first clue. But when the Bible is not relevant to what you want to believe or you use it 
in the form of according to the scriptures, then your seminary training kicks in and what all your, your demonic Bible college professors taught you is what becomes your standard ideology, uh, you know, mindset um, analogy of, of what really took place. And of course, uh, it's, it's not the same. Uh, Luke chapter 16, we'll not turn to it, but you know the story very clearly, is Lazarus and the rich man in hell. And you're going to find that, um, that in that story, the Bible says that uh, uh, rich man is in hell, Lazarus is in what is commonly called now because of the terminology there, Abraham's bosom. It's also called paradise. When Christ was on the cross, he said to the thief, today thou shalt be me in paradise. Now that's led to a lot of speculation. Is it, two, is it two different names for the same place or does one name mean something and the other? Some guys have suggested that paradise is for the Gentiles, Old Testament Gentiles, and Abraham's bosom is for the Jews. And it may or may not be true. There's no way to prove that. Things like that, you don't get hung up on because it really doesn't matter. <clears throat> I'm okay with it either way. Uh, if somebody would say, this is what I believe, I'd say that's fine. If somebody said, well, I believe it's not, I think that's fine too. End of the day, I don't get hung up on things you can't find definitive passages on. I just let them go because it doesn't really matter. You know, it's, a, it's, it's like if you have two dogs, does it matter which one eats first as long as they get fed? I mean, it only really matters when you have to take them out, which one you take out has to go the worst. That's what matters. But other than, other than that, it doesn't matter to me. So Luke chapter 16 talks about a place called Abraham's bosom. It's also referenced as paradise. The Bible tells us that it's in the center of the earth. And uh, turn over to uh, Psalms chapter 16. Pick it up in verse 1, 16, 1. Preserve me, O God, for in thee do I put my trust. O my soul, thou hast said unto the Lord, Thou art my Lord, my goodness extendeth not to thee. But to the saints that are in the earth, see that? And to the excellent in whom is all my delight. Now, there's a verse that tells you that the saints that are in the earth, those will be the Old Testament saints that are in Abraham's bosom, Luke chapter 16, which is located in the center of the earth. Now, turn over to Ephesians chapter 4. Now, when Christ died, there's a number of things that are going on that you need to have at least a basic understanding of so you can speak to it. You'll develop it as you go on. 
And Ephesians chapter 4 gives us some insight into this. Look at verse 8, 4, 8. Wherefore, he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. Now, he that ascended, that's Christ going up to heaven, what is it but that he first descended? Where did he go? Into the lower parts of the earth. You see that? Why? Because that's where the saints were, Psalm 16. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, notice it's plural, three of them, and might fulfill all things. So there it's showing you that the resurrection of the Old Testament saints, now notice they're called captive. That's very important to understand that. They're called captive because they're held captive by death. And the devil has the keys of death, so he holds them captive. Now let me show you some verses on the word captive that you'll want to get along with this. Isaiah 61. Now, I'm going to show you something that you want to watch for in your Bibles. Uh, Isaiah 61.1. Now, everything in verse 1 is the first coming of Christ. I want you to know that coming in. You might want to put a little note in your Bible that verse 1 is first coming of Christ. It says this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. This is Christ speaking. Because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings. Now, there's your gospel. See, there's your gospel, good news, good tidings. Under the meek, that's Israel. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, that's Israel. This is all Matthew chapter 10, first coming of Christ, the Sermon on the Mount. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, now here it comes, to proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to them that are bound. Notice it, it's not making a reference to people who are in jail all over Asia Minor. If that was the case, it would say prisons, plural. He's talking about one particular prison. And that will be the prison of death that they're held captive in uh, because of the fact that the, uh, um, the devil's got the key to it. Now, I've told you many, many times, and, you know, scholars laugh at this, neo-evangelicals laugh at this, most Baptists laugh at it, um, and, and, but it's okay, is how important that the punctuation is uh, in your Bible. God did not only inspire and preserve how, what was in it. He used the English language when it was in the most perfect form and then use that language as a structure to show you doctrine. And the reason for that is, is because we can know that all Scripture is given by inspiration and is profitable, number one, for doctrine. So everything in the Bible is going to be about doctrine first. 
So now he says, 61, in this, watch this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and he hath sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prisoners that are bound. And then look at your punctuation. What is that? What is it? A what? It's a semicolon. Now watch this. Everything in verse 1 up to that semicolon is the first coming of Christ. Now watch verse 2. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that are mourned. That's the second coming. You're going to find that over and over and over and over again. It, it comes right up there, and the first coming and the second coming is, is divided by the punctuation that he uses. I can't impress upon you uh, the importance of things like that. There isn't a Baptist preacher in this city. I, I guarantee you that, that would, would get that. There certainly isn't an evangelical anywhere in America, if not around the world, in, anywhere that would get it. And there's not a Bible scholar on the face of four universes that would ever get it. Because they reject the Bible as the final authority, where I don't. I believe... I believe it's the Bible from cover to cover, including the cover. I mean, I believe everything about it. And when you do that, then you get those little keys. But there shows you where the captives are. And I'll show you some more here. Uh, Isaiah 42. Twenty-one. The Lord is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. Now, if you don't have a note there, I want to put this in. The Lord, that's God the Father, is well pleased for his righteousness' sake. That's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ will always be the righteousness of God. He's the visible appearance of the invisible God. He's God's righteousness in a visible sense. So when he says the Lord, notice it's all uppercase letters, that's God the Father, is well pleased for his righteousness sake. He will magnify the law and make it honorable. But this is a people robbed and spoiled. Now he's talking about Israel. They are, uh, they are all of them snared in holes. <clears throat> they are hid in prison houses. They are for a prey, and none delivereth, for a spoil, and none saith restore. And there again, <clears throat> that is a picture of the Old Testament saints. <clears throat> it's also a picture of, of the tribulation saints that are being held in literal prisons uh, during the tribulation period. All right, the next one is Luke chapter 4. Now, here again, <clears throat> the reason I give this one to you is I want to show you how the Bible defines itself. This is very important. Now, you want to mark this one back to Isaiah 42, where we went here. 
uh, or maybe it was 61, but uh, you want to mark it back there. Yeah, 61, right. Uh, look at verse 16. Then he came to Nazareth, <coughs> where he had been brought up. <coughs> and as his custom was, he went into the synagogue uh, on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah, which he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now watch this. This is a reference, this is a reference to Isaiah 61. Watch this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. That's the same. Because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel. You see that thing? He changed good tidings or glad tidings. Now it's defined as the gospel. See how that works? He just defined what it is back and forth for you. Now you want to mark that back and forth. Gospel to the poor, he has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering the sight to the blind, and set at liberty them that are bruised. Now, the recovering of the sight to the blind, let's talk about that for a second. Your first thing would mean, would be, that that's a reference to him healing the blind people. That was where most guys would go. But that's not the reference to that. <clears throat> I've told you many, many times that every miracle that he does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, every person, every problem, every issue, every blind person, every dead person, every, mean, every demon-possessed person is going to be fundamentally a picture of, na of the nation of Israel's spiritual condition. So when he says to recover the sight to the blind, he's talking about Israel's blindness, which the blind people in the New Testament Gospels illustrate. That's one of the great keys that tells you that every blind man in the Bible or in the New Testament Gospels is a picture spiritually of Israel's spiritual condition. They're blind. That's the verse that tells you that. <coughs> Nobody would ever get that. And they would just think, oh, yeah, he, he gave eyesight back to the blind, you know, Bartim all those guys, Bartimaeus and all those blind people. Yeah, yeah, that, that's good. That's really good. It's more than that. And then, of course, he said to set at liberty. Now, liberty in your Bible, in an Old Testament sense, will always be the millennial reign of Christ. For a New Testament Christian, there will always be your salvation. <coughs> When Israel gets the millennial reign of Christ, they finally get their liberty. When you got saved is when you got yours. You're no longer under the penalty of the law of death and sin. You now have been set free. Where you and me was a captive of death before we were saved, once you get saved, now you are set free from the prison of death that held you, and you now are set at liberty. And that's why Paul goes through what's great, uh, great length of time talking about how we are to conduct our liberty in Christ Jesus. The next one is Matthew chapter 27. Pick it up in verse 50. 
And Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now, I'll just stop right there for a second. This is one of the most amazing, to me, one of the most amazing places in the Bible. The veil, the veil was what separated the priest and the area of their working inside the second compartment of the tabernacle where the pieces of furniture was. The veil is what separated them from the Holy of Holies where God was, that if they looked upon or went in, other than the high priest when it was his time to go in, they were killed. You couldn't see it. When Christ died on the cross, the most amazing thing that signaled the end of the Old Testament and God dealing with the nation of Israel was the ripping of that veil from top to bottom and showing now that some priest, some Sadducee, somebody after that point went into the tabernacle or the temple, saw that ripped and saw the Ark of the Covenant in there and didn't die. At that point, everybody connected with that had to know something had changed. And yet, in 70 A.D., when Titus comes down and they finally kicked out of the land and there is no temple, there's still, somebody showed that veil back up because they're still practicing it and never said a word about the fact that the veil had been ripped. Somebody is being absolutely dishonest with something that God clearly gave them. Now, you can take that to the next step with the Bible God gave you. The evidence of that veil being ripped is unquestionable. And the evidence in history of your King James Bible being the absolute perfect Word of God is unquestionable. In both cases, somebody denied the evidence and the truth, sewed it back up, tried to sell somebody else a bill of goods. That's what you got. All right, verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to the bottom, and the earth did quake, and the rocks rent. Now, let's stop and talk about from the top to the bottom, because somebody will ask that question sooner or later. And, of course, the veil being ripped from top to bottom went along with the fact that Christ came down from heaven to this earth. So it's ripped from the top to the bottom. Verse 52 and the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints which slept arose, and came out of the graves after his resurrection. You see that thing? Bible has to put in there that all this took place after his resurrection, because his resurrection was the one that we studied first. If that one didn't happen, the rest of them weren't going to happen. And went into the holy sea and appeared unto many. Now, this is one of the things in the Bible that there's not a lot of information on. Um, uh, there's been a lot of questioning about it by the scholars. Uh, 
And one of the things is, is that they, they talk about, we, uh, it said many of the uh, saints which slept arose. And of course, um, they say, well, that means that all of them didn't come up because it said many. It should have said all. And here again, um, look at 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2. And this is where the Bible will trip you up if you don't believe it. And you've got to love the Bible for this aspect. Look at 6.1. Let as many servants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor. Now there's a place that says as, uh, let as many servants. That's all servants. The word many and the word all are used interchangeably sometimes in the Bible. And of course, if, if you didn't see that and didn't know that, then that's why you get over there and you make up those weird concepts that have nothing to do with anything in the Bible. Look at Matthew chapter 20, verse 28. Even as the Son of Man came not to be ministered unto, but to minister and to give his life a ransom for many. But he died for all. It's used interchangeably in your Bible. And here again, guys who don't, this is where God trips them up. If you don't believe that book is God's word completely, you're going to get fouled up somewhere just like that. Because the Bible is the only book in the history of man's existence that for you to get it 100% right and not get screwed up in it, you have to believe everything about it. You can't, you can't believe one thing somebody tells you that even remotely goes against the Scriptures. Now, the other reason why he used many here, obviously, we know that many means all. And somebody might say, well, why did he use the word many? Why did he use the word all? Well, because the word many will cover both issues here. Now, these people are coming out of the graves and are going into Jerusalem. Obviously, they're a picture of and a witness of the resurrection. Do you know how many people were dead between the, in the Old Testament? Millions and millions and millions and millions and millions. So what he's saying is that he's using the word many because the word many means all. All of them came up, but he uses the word many because not all of them went into the city. Otherwise, there wouldn't have been no hotels enough for all of them. 
And of course, this is, this is all a picture of, of, of what he does here. Now, turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. Yeah. Yeah, anybody that was in the city. Now, let me tell you something. Uh, and I'll be very honest with you. That's, that, that's Saturday night. And that's why even to this day, Saturday night is the biggest night of the week for something to go on. Because let me tell you something. That put the whole town on, on alert. There were people there in the bars drinking and having a beer and with their buddies, and they saw Joe Schmo walk down the street who they just buried two weeks ago. I guarantee you, a lot of them stopped drinking that night. Yeah. Well, it says, it, it says in the passage, after his resurrection. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, there's lots of examples of it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I just gave you a couple. Yeah, there's lots of examples of it. You betcha. And it's a standard thing that many is used in place of all. I mean, it's just that, just that, it's just that simple. And uh, so come back here to 1 Peter chapter 3, and I'll show, you the, I'll show you the timeline as best as it's laid out for you in the Bible. And this will go along with Caleb's question here. Now look at uh, 18, 318, 1 Peter 318. For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, for the just and the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death uh, in the flesh, but quickeneth by the Spirit. Now, again, I'll just I, I point these out. You see how a Calvinist would have a problem with verse 18? He says God died for the elect. He clearly told you he died for the just and the unjust. See how that works? I mean... I know a place over there in 1 Peter, I think it's chapter 1, where it talks about Christ died for the false prophets that are going to die and going to hell. In other words, if your teaching doesn't cross over and connect to other Bible doctrines, you're in trouble. And this, you're in trouble. It says clearly, verse 18, for Christ also hath suffered for sins 
for the just and for the unjust. He died for Israel. That's the just here. And he died for the unjust. That's everybody else. And there's no election to it. He died for both groups. That he might bring us to God, uh, being put to death in the flesh, but quickened by the Spirit. By which also he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, which sometimes were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was a preparing, wherein, uh, that is, eight souls were saved. Now this is one of the, um, this is a tough passage in the Bible. It really is. Uh, I say that because everybody who writes about it says that. I don't really think it's that tough, but they say it is, so it probably is. Never been to me. But it's a thing where uh, when Christ dies on the cross, we know he goes to Abraham's bosom. When he goes to Abraham's bosom, he obviously preaches two messages. To those that are in captive, the Old Testament saints, he preaches the fact that the resurrection has come and that he's going to lead them out. Then the Bible says that he preaches to somebody else here uh, by the which he also had preached unto the spirits in prison. Now there's a lot of talk about this and a lot of guys want to line this up with him going down and talking to the uh, Old Testament saints and all of that stuff. But here's your problem with that. In the Bible, men are never called spirits. They're called souls, they're called men, but never spirits. In the Bible, there's only one group that is called spirits, and that's angels. And then he clearly tells you in verse 20 that whoever these spirits are, they had something to do with the days of Noah. Come over to 2 Peter 2.4. It says, for God spared not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved unto judgment. And spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person. Putting the context of these fallen angels, which are called spirits in the Bible, here and where we're at in 1 Peter in Noah's day. So I would say this, and there's a lot of controversy and talk about what he preached to them. We're not going to get into that. Suffice it to say that he did preach to them. And what he does is when he dies, he's now got the keys of death. When he resurrects, he now has the keys of death and hell. So now he can lead captivity captive. I've always thought this is the absoluteness of what Jesus says, and it's little things like this that catch me. When he went down to Abraham's bosom and he preached that he was going to lead them out, he didn't have the keys yet. You do know that. He didn't get the keys to be resurrected. He preached that message to them while he was still dead. You know why he could preach the message that he was going to lead them out? Well, he's still dead and didn't have the keys yet because whatever he says, brother, he does. 
That's the book I got. When he was talking to Israel over there in Joshua chapter 1, they're not even in the land yet. He's telling them that that land is theirs. He's speaking to them like they're already in it when they haven't even crossed over yet. You know why? Because whatever God says is absolute. He could go down there at Abraham's bosom and says, two days, we're out of here, guys. Pack up your bags, you know, get everything ready. Uh, sell your cars, you won't need them. Get everything, I don't know if they had cars in there, but get rid of it, everything. We are going out of here. And he didn't even have the keys yet. That is the absoluteness of what God's Word says. And he let him out. And uh, it's a thing where um, he takes them out. Then he preaches to the spirits. And uh, there's a lot of conjecture about that. Uh, one school of thought is that uh, he was preaching to them that he had the keys to death of life and the devil with who they followed had lost and he was proclaiming the victory. That could be true. There's another thing that, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know where to go with it, but I certainly don't throw it out because it's based on the Bible. And that is these spirits in prison were con a conglomeration of angels coming down and mixing their angelic seed with human eggs. It was a spirit that had no soul, that had no physical body, that took on some kind of physical body and through sexual relations impregnated a human being that did have a soul, body, and spirit, and then produced a child that probably had a body and a spirit, but did not have a soul. So, the idea is, and I'm not saying this is true. You want, you want to know what's going on? I'll tell you what's going on, but I'm also telling you, you know, don't be going out there and say, well, this is what happened. You're an idiot. You don't even know what happened. <laughs> it's been stated that because they were created outside of God's plan. Take that in the seam of things. That they didn't have a soul, so he couldn't deal with them like he dealt with either the angels themselves or a human being because they're somewhere in the middle. So he had to create a special dispensation and go down and give them the truth because of who they were and how they were conceived. Which brings up the next thing is where they go, is that they say that he was giving them a chance to trust him and because of the fact that they, through no fault of their own, were caught up in that scenario. That may or may not be, and I'm certainly not dogmatic about it is, but that is what is out there been out there for years. The old boys taught that. The new guys, don't, they don't even know what's going on. They couldn't find anybody has bosom. I mean, when it came to um, understanding the raising of the Old Testament saints, they couldn't even raise a good case of hemorrhoids. They, 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 they don't get it. It's a thing where that is something that has been taught for a long time by guys who knew a lot more about the Bible than, than you and I do. And I just give it to you. Um, 
it could be the offspring of the sons of God who have human bodies and spirit but no souls. They're half and half. God cannot deal with them as human and would have to give them a special dispensation. Um, so notice he says there in, in chapter 4, verse 6, For this cause was the gospel preached also to them that are dead, that they might be judged according to men in the flesh, but live according to God in the Spirit. Now, you see that thing? Well, that's the verse that will stick in your throat right there. He says in verse 6, for this cause, what cause? Up there in chapter 3. He says that the gospel was preached to them that are dead. You say, well, that's human beings. No, it can't be. It was preached to them that they might be judged according to men. They're not men. He's preaching it to them that they might be judged like men. In the flesh. Well, there you got it. Suffice it to say, the tribulation saints are the first resurrection, and that will be the Old Testament saints that Christ takes out of captivity of death leads them up on high and you know he takes out and today Abraham's bosom is is empty now Abraham's bosom as you might know uh, has two parts to it uh, Luke chapter 16 is the only information you really get on it that's any kind of description and that talks about the fact that Abraham's bosom was Two compartments. One compartment was where Lazarus was, who was comforted. The other department was hell, where they were tormented in the flame. That's where the rich man was. Between those two compartments, the Bible says there was a great gulf fixed. A gulf is an expanse of space. Gulf of Mexico. It's an expanse of space. So, and it clearly says that one could get over there and nobody could get back. But there's two sides to that. Once he leads the captivity captive, then uh, at this point in time, anyhow, Abraham's bosom is now um, empty. But the hell side of torment is still going. Uh, and that's where unsaved people go at this point when they die. Uh, and when they talk about dying and going to hell. So you have the first one is Christ. The second one, yes, ma'am. Yeah, the, the, that detail is not given. I can't answer that. Anything I would say would just be a guess. It doesn't say, all you get is, the, is the, what you got here. Is they resurrected, some of them went into the city, and then obviously it looks like that they go into the city from 6 o'clock that night to sometime 6 o'clock that morning. Because sometime in there, he goes up, and he would take them with him. If you notice, there's a place when he first meets the people, he says, don't touch me, I've not yet ascended to the Father. Then about an hour and a half later, they meet him again, and they're handling him all over the place. So sometime in there, he went up to the Father, did what he did up there, presenting the sacrifice, and then came back down. Most likely, almost most assuredly, all those Old Testament saints went up with him when he went to the Father. But the time frame in that exactly... It's just not given. 
It's just not given. I don't know. There's no way you can do that. Yeah. So in uh, verse uh, uh, where it talks about the spiritual children of the Nicene, those spirits are the offspring of the of the uh, sons of God, and are the sons of God held in a separate place. Well, the sons of God, the Bible talks about, are reserved in chains in the bottomless pit. Well, I don't know that it's a different place, but it's it's a different place within Abraham's bosom. Okay. And that's where the devil will be cast down? Yes. Okay. Yeah. Chris? So when those guys went up with Christ um, in that resurrection, so now going back to what we were talking about earlier tonight, so did they go into, into the sleep thing? Or, uh, the uh, that's an excellent question. In fact, somebody asked that question Thursday night after Thursday night Bible study. Uh, and his question is simply this. You know, we talked about Thursday night that when, no matter when you die um, in whatever century, you all wake up at the same moment of time, like and like sleep, and people going to sleep at a different time but waking up at the same time, resurrection morning. We like to put the, these Old Testament saints in a different category, but truth of the matter is they would be in the same category. It, may, it doesn't matter if it's one person dying or four million of them stepping onto eternity. There's still no time there. So I would say that when they came up and went up with Christ, the moment they stepped into eternity, they're just in the same state as somebody who died. And it just goes that fast for them, that quick for them. For us, it's been 2,000 years. For them, it's just a blink of time. And that's the difference between a a world with time in it and an eternity with no time in it, which is hard for some people to grasp. So I'd say the same rule applies to them as it did to anybody else that died. When they stepped into eternity, it was just like that. And that's the deal where when Paul says the absence of the body is presently... That's right, because there's no time involved between the two. Excellent point. Excellent point. You know, I never thought of that that way. That's a, that is exactly what that verse means. Thank you. Thanks. That, that's great. That's exactly what it is. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. I'm sorry? The who? The king of okay. Where are you at now? I'm sorry, I can't get the verse where you're at. Where? Oh, Jude chapter 1. Yeah, verse 6, And the angels which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitations, hath to reserve an everlasting change unto darkness to the judgment of the great day. Notice that there's no, it's very clear there's no getting out for them. They're in chains, in darkness, unto uh, the judgment of the great day. That'll be the great white throne judgment. Yeah, that's of the angels themselves. Those are the same ones. Same, same, same angels, same darkness, same place, same change. So the, the very fact that they're able to move from flesh to flesh, they're still in the chains of darkness, they have nowhere to go until... The, the overall unclean, demonic world, that comes into play back in Genesis 1-1 when a third decide to leave. 
within that third, you have a number of them that come down in Genesis 6 and then come down again later before they go into the land. They're all the same except a portion of the third took on some kind of humanoid body so they could cohabit with women. The rest of them stayed in spiritless bodies and the only bodies they can have are the ones that they possess through demon possession. Same system. They just get the bodies two different ways. Yeah. Loud now so I can hear you. Where? Uh-huh. I already told you, that's all the information you get. I don't even know if that's what it's referencing to. I'm just telling you what is out there. I'm not advocating either one of them. I have my own ideas on it, but my ideas are my ideas. And it doesn't give you any information other than more than I just gave you. Anything else is just somebody wanting to believe this, so this is what I believe happened. And if you're going to do that, then I'm going to say that they all went to Longhorn Steak Company before they went up there to get something, one last supper. And that's why in prison, before they kill you, they give you one last meal based on that. You make it up, I make it up. I only give you what the facts are there. I can't go anywhere where it doesn't give you a clear line of, of teaching. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Okay, so the semicolon there at the end of verse 1 that separates the first coming from the second coming. It talks about the day of the vengeance of our God in verse 2. I was just wondering, then there's a semicolon after that, and that phrase, to comfort all that mourn, is that the millennium? Yes, it is. It is. Yeah, that is the millennium. And and that's good, Danny. I, I, didn't, I didn't go on with that, and uh, I was just focusing on the one, but I'm glad you brought that up. Let's look at that now, because you want to get this in here. Thank you very much. Um, let's go back to uh, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God uh, is upon me, because the Lord hath anointed me to preach good tidings unto the meek, and hath sent to the bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to them that are bound. First coming of Christ. To proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord, and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all that mourn. Second coming of Christ to appoint unto them that morn in Zion, to give unto them the beauty for ashes and oil for the, uh, uh, for the morning and garments of praise for the sight of heaviness, and that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, how they uh, might be glorified. Millennium. Absolutely. That's the Romans chapter 11, the nation of Israel being the olive tree. Absolutely. See, this is the value of, of everybody knowing the Bible better than me or as good as me or whatever. Everybody, everybody takes it where 
Um, if, if I miss something, you do. Now, most honestly, most pastors would be up, but they'd be paranoid about that. You know, they always got to pretend like they know everything. I much rather pretend I don't know nothing. That way, when I don't know nothing, I don't feel so bad. It's just that simple. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, don't go there because in the next one you have a paragraph mark and that changes the subject. Yeah. That's the second coming. Where are you at now? Luke 4.19. Okay, what are you saying? Because in verse 19, that's where he stops. He closes the book and he gives it back to him. Right. He, he continues on So you're asking me why he doesn't put the rest of the verse in? No, why is it one? Yeah. We were talking earlier that it stopped. You were talking about stopping at the semicolon, but Christ continues on after the comma. And you said, well, why the body does that stay after the comma? Well, he's obviously not, in Luke, he's not quoting everything that he said. Right. So he's making a point back in Isaiah that he's not trying to make in Luke. Evidently, in Luke, he has something else he wants to focus on. But back here, he's giving you the whole prophecy. Now, I would say that in Luke, that he stopped to, uh, to preach the acceptable the year of the Lord. If you go back here in Isaiah 61, it says to proclaim the acceptable the year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God to comfort all that mourn. The reason why he didn't say that up in Luke, because if they would have accepted him at the first coming of Christ, that day of vengeance would have never come. So he's making a complete prophecy back there, but here he's making it based on them accepting him and leaves the second coming out of it at that point. Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm sorry? Yeah, well, yeah, honestly, it's, 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 not separ it's separating the day of vengeance from, from the unsaved world to Israel's comfort is what it's doing. Okay, what are you saying in verse 3? That semicolon to separate the millennium from eternity. What semicolon? Where? 
Oh, I mean after the spirit of heaviness? Yeah. I, I don't know. Um, uh, it's hard to say because in the millennium you have the trees of righteousness that go down along the river out of the river of the sanctuary. So I, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't know that you can split it that far down. Uh, I, I don't know how to tell you the answer to that one. I just know verse 3 is the millennium. How you want to put that out? Uh, if somebody wanted to say that's going out into eternity, that would be fine. All I can tell you is when you get over to Ezekiel 40 through chapter 48 and you go through and study the holy oblation and the river coming out of the sanctuary, it's got trees on both sides of it. So, yeah. I can't hear you. I'm not sure what you're asking. Just the way it reads, like it seems that in verse 1 he talks about proclaiming liberty to the captives, and then verse 2 he says to proclaim, like he's, he's saying. But he's not proclaiming liberty in verse 2. He's talking about an acceptable uh, year of the Lord. That's the second coming. Well, it doesn't say, I don't know if that's the message he preached to them or not. We don't have the message. All I know is that when Isaiah wrote this prophetically, he's talking about the first coming of Christ, the second coming of Christ, and the millennium. How that fit into the message, I have no idea. I'm just going with what the punctuation doctrinally teaches. It teaches that there's a first coming, that he let the captives go. There's a second coming, which is going to be his day of vengeance, and then there's a millennium that's going to be where Israel flourishes as an olive tree. I mean, that's all he's saying. He's speaking prophetically. Now, if Jesus preached all of that message or some of that message or picked that message, I, I, I don't know. It doesn't say. In other words, you don't want to get to the point where you cut this with such a fine knife that you just get yourself bound up in something where it does, it's a dead-end street. You, you don't know what he did. That verse is a prophetic verse talking about the first coming, the second coming, and the millennium. If Christ used all of that, some of that, in his sermon down there, I have no idea. I don't know what he did. I just know that Isaiah 61 is Isaiah speaking prophetically, talking about the first coming, the second coming, and the millennium to the nation of Israel. The first coming of Christ was for the good times to open up the prisons and set captive free. The second coming is going to be to proclaim the dear of the Lord, second coming. And then verse 3 is going to be a point, those that were mourning in Zion, that they get the land and they become a tree. Other than that, I have no idea what Christ preached going down there. And so it's just, I mean, just take it for what it is. Don't try to make something <laughs> that it doesn't go there. It's, it's just, it's what you have. And it's just... You know, that, prophetically, that's exactly what you've got. Okay, let's get back on this here. We're going to run out of time here. Um, the third one, come over to Ephesians chapter 2.
All right, Ephesians chapter 2. Now, the third one is the resurrection of your spiritual body the day you got saved. And uh, before you were saved, you were dead in trespasses of sin. Because of Christ's resurrection, when you got saved, your spiritual, your, your soul got resurrected. Now you went from darkness to light, death to life. Uh, you were dead in the trespasses of sin. Now you're in the newness of life. And this is what he's saying here. Pick it up in verse uh, 4, chapter 2, verse 4. But God, who is rich in mercy for his great love, wherein he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, there we are, um, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace or your save. Now, just another word here, and you want to probably, if you don't have it, mark that word quickened uh, in yellow. Uh, wherever you find the word quick or quickened, in, in most cases, you might find one or two that isn't, but in most cases, it's talking about your salvation. He quickened you. That means that your salvation took place very quickly. That's what it's saying. Even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ by grace are you saved. In other words, because Christ got resurrected, you're quickened with Christ, and your resurrection is based on his resurrection. That's why Paul said to the church at Corinth, if he didn't resurrect, you're still dead in your sins. Because your resurrection depends on his resurrection. And hath raised us up. There's your resurrection right there. When Christ got resurrected, he got raised up from the dead. And verse 6 says, and raised us up. You got raised from, from, from dead to life. And hath raised us up together and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now notice the word made us. Because it's not a natural thing for you and me to do. A lot of things in the Bible that God, once you get saved, God makes you do. Because we just wouldn't do it on our own. And, uh, and hath raised us up together that we might sit in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Now there's a phrase that you, at some point you have time in the book of Ephesians, you want to go through and mark uh, in your Bible, in Ephesians, all those places that says, in Christ, in him, in whom. Um, they're just a, it's just over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, and I think in chapter 1, there's 11 times it says in him. This will help you when you start to deal with the Calvinist crowd or predestination crowd um, that they talk about everything. Uh, and you, you have, you, Ephesians 1 clearly says that everything that you can get, God put in Christ. You can't get them till you get in Christ. So it isn't about, and predestination never has anything to do with salvation. You're predestined, Romans 8, you're predestined after you are saved to get a body like Jesus Christ. But you've got to get in Christ first. That's the key. Then he goes and he says that in the ages to come, uh, he might show the exceedingly riches of his grace and his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, any, any should boast. Now this is, this is our resurrection. Our resurrection is a little different than everything else. Turn over to Romans chapter 8. Our resurrection has two parts to it. Now here again, nobody can get this today. I mean no one. 
Romans chapter 8 is probably, outside of the book of Ephesians itself, Romans chapter 8 is the, um, the single greatest uh, chapter in the Bible on your resurrection body. And it's a whole chapter devoted to it. And you're going to find that in Romans chapter 8, dealing with the res- your spiritual resurrection is the key word adoption. You and I as Gentiles were not God's first choice. Israel was God's first choice. Israel got called God's son without ever having a new birth. They got called God's son because of the fact that they were a literal nation that God chose to be his son. You as a literal in being could never be God's son. You had to go through a new birth spiritually to become a child of God spiritually. And even though you're saved right now and you're God's child, it's, your body's not God's child. Your body is your flesh, and in your flesh is no good thing. The thing that makes you God's child is the, is the new birth spiritually that took place that God, who originally wanted nothing to do with you, decided to have something to do with you, but the only way he could take you to have you be part of what he is is to adopt you because you couldn't get there on your own. Israel got there just by being the nation that God said, I'm going to choose this nation. You couldn't get there that way. You had to get in Christ, and the only way you get in Christ was what Christ did for you on the cross, and the only reason you did that is because God decided to do that so you could get adopted by him because you and your own, me and you in our own physical body wasn't going anywhere. So you're going to find that your spiritual a resurrection is in two formats. First of all, we find it in uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 14. We'll pick it up in verse 13. For if you live after the flesh, ye shall die. But if you through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. That's pretty clear. Now here it comes. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God they are called, they are the sons of God. Now you notice, you never find the term daughter of God in the Bible. He's talking about everybody in Christianity right there, men and women. And uh, that's a whole study into itself, but I want you to see that. And for ye have not, here it comes, verse 15, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. Spirit of bondage was going back in the old unsaved world where you're under bondage of the curse of sin and death. But you have received the spirit of adoption. Then you went from the spirit of bondage to the spirit of adoption. Whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. If then children, then heirs, heirs of God, and join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be glorified together. Now that is your first adoption. The first adoption is your spiritual adoption. That is your deals with your soul. And now you were made a child of God, and you can cry, Abba, Father. And it's a thing where you now become part of, of, of God's family as his son, 
a child, but you were adopted. Now, the second aspect of it is found in, uh, well, let's just go on down here. Verse 19, for the earnest expectation of the creature waited for the manifestation of the sons of God. Now, that, that Isaiah 11, the animals today are waiting for the curse to be lifted off to this planet because they don't like getting eaten by each other either. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Now, that's the greatest reason right there why you go out to Yosemite National Park. They have signs up, don't touch the bears. You get out and think you're going to touch them, and the bear eats you. <laughs> and the park rangers go on the news, and he says they're wild animals, where the Bible says they may be wild, but they don't like you because you screwed them over. Because if you curse, they got cursed, so they're going to eat you. Now, you may have a domestic, you may have a domestic, you see it all the time. They have domestic whales, they have domestic lions, tigers, and all that stuff. And you domesticate them, and they're fine, they're like pets and all this stuff. And then one day they eat you. And that's because no matter how you domesticate them, they can still read Romans chapter 8. One day they wake up and they say, I'm the way I am because of him. Now he wants me to be his pet. When once I had the liberty that I could be friends with all the other animals and now I'm under the same bondage, I'm going to eat him. They're under the same bondage that we are and they don't appreciate it. For the creature, that's the animals, was made subject to vanity not willingly. It wasn't their fault. Back in the garden, the lions and the bears and the lambs and the, and the goats and the deer, they all got along. It wasn't until we screwed it up. So now you go out in their world, mess with them, they'll eat you. You go out there and you say, oh, that big old bear is so cute. I bet he'd like to have an apple. No, he wants your arm, your legs, and your head. Why? Because he's wild? No, he's mad. Verse 21, because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of the corruption under the glorious liberty of the children of God. I guarantee you, if you were out in the park and that big bear was coming to you, if fast enough you could read Romans chapter 8, verse 21 and 22, he'd probably be back off. He'd know that you were on his side. I've not tested that theory, but I'm just going to tell you. Verse 22, you're laughing. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain until now. You know what? We talk about all the floods down in south and the hurricanes and the hemicanes and the tornadoes and all this stuff. We call it Mother Nature. Call it whatever you want. But Mother Nature is ticked. You know why? Because there was the time when there wasn't any hurricanes. Man made it that way. So if there's a Mother Nature out there, she's mad. She's going to rip things up because the Bible says, for we know that the whole creation groaneth. Whole creation is under a curse and travaileth in pain. Now look at verse 23. And not only they, there's the animals, there's the weather, there's the world itself, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Ah, first fruits of the Spirit. Now I'll just tell you right now, and I wouldn't say this outside this group right here, but I'll say it to you. 
first fruits of the Spirit. You know what that means? That means there's a second fruit of the Spirit. The truth of the matter is, you're sitting here today, you're only half saved. I mean, you're as good as saved. You're like the people down there in Abraham's bosom. He says, we're getting out in two days. He hadn't even had the keys yet. It's a sure thing. It's a sure thing you're going to heaven, but you're only technically speaking, based on Romans 8, you're only half saved. The first fruit of the Spirit was the first adoption, which is spiritually, you're waiting for the adoption of your body. That'll complete it. You don't have that yet. You've still got this old piece of clay that gives you all the problems that it gives you with all the flesh and all the seeds and all the sickness and all the problems and all the aches and all the pains and all the complaining and all the things you don't like. And uh, you groan just like the creation does. And people around you groan louder than you do. Because they're always groaning. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves grown within ourselves, waiting for the adoption. Well, I thought we already had the adoption. Well, look at verse 15 again. The adoption of the Spirit. Look at verse uh, 23. The adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. Two adoptions. When you got saved, your spirit and your soul, your soul got adopted. Your body hasn't yet. And for that thing to be absolutely complete, you've got to get the second adoption. That's why you and I are groaning in our flesh. That's why we do stupid things, make dumb choices, do some horrendously goofy stuff, get ourselves in all kinds of jams. You know why? Our soul may be sealed on the day of redemption and sinless, but boy, my flesh sure isn't. And I'm groaning just like the bears out in Yosemite or the whales out there, Shamu, the killer whale who pretends he's nice till he wants to eat you. I mean... It, the bottom line is we are, we are in a mess until we get the final adoption, the redemption of our body. And so there's two adoptions. There's two aspects to our resurrection. My soul got resurrected the moment I got saved, but my body's not been resurrected yet. I'll get that here any second. Then, then you'll have that complete concept. And of course, uh, it shows you that there's a physical adoption, your body, and there's a spiritual adoption, your soul. And your resurrection is connected to both of them. So you're only halfway resurrected right now. And I know I say that tongue-in-cheek because you're, you're good as saved in, in heaven as you could be. You already told you are seated in heavenly places. But technically speaking, if you want to put it right down on it, you're only halfway there. You can't go to heaven the way you are. You can fellowship with God the way you are, but you can't get to heaven the way you are. Because heaven is a place where it is so hostile as far as the environment that it has nothing like earth. There's no oxygen, there's no this, there's no that. You've got to have a body that can sustain all that. You don't have that right now. So God just gave you the first adoption so you can fellowship with him. Then he's going to give you another adoption so you can travel through space with him. And fulfill the plan. Which brings up another great principle that God only gives you what you need as you need it. Um, is that why man is trying to domesticate them and control the weather to almost divide them? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's a great point. Man, man wants to dom- man wants to domesticate animals. He wants to have perfect weather because man is trying to get back with what he had in the garden. 
Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, uh, the man, uh, you know, the, it's the underlying theme of what man does what he does. I realize that there's people who just love their animals. I mean, I am one of them. You know, I, my dogs don't care. They know it wasn't me. They knew it was Adam. I've, I've, I've heard me teach the Bible to them long enough. They know. I mean, they're not dumb. They know I would never, you know, I would have. If they just know better, I mean, oh, I wouldn't. I mean, I'm a guy that feeds them. I mean, I got up at 5:15 this morning because they decided they were hungry. And I just got up. They do. They appreciate that. They know that. Normally, I get up at six, 6:15. They wanted up an hour earlier today. You know what? It's okay. I went down to them, got the little water, got the little food, and I said, you know what? I'm doing this because I love you. And I'll tell you what. I know man screwed it all up, and that's why you're hungry and you want to bark at 5:15 in the morning. It's okay. Christ made a way for me, I'm making a way for you. <laughs> they got an understanding. There's lots of people like that. But fundamentally, man's honored desire is for him to get back to what he once lost. Yeah, he does that in everything. He does the same thing with governments. That's why we're looking for a perfect government. We think that all the other governments are bad, and capitalism is the best form of government that gives men the freedom and peace, and they equate freedom and peace with the Bible, where freedom and peace in the Bible has nothing to do with being able to cross state lines or buy firecrackers or buy this or buy that or drink beer or do that. Freedom and peace in the Bible has to do with salvation. But they don't get that, so they think that we make countries in peace and safety by giving them a democracy of freedom because they have a screwed up concept of the Bible. And so they think that that makes us a Christian nation and makes us better than communism, atheism, socialism, Mormonism, uh, or uh, Buddhism, or Confucianism, or Mohammedism, or whatever. We think because they are so brutal and restrictive in their religions and the way they treat their people that God would never do that. So they think that because we're a free society and you can have all you want, two cars in every God, two chickens in every pot, we, we, want to, we want to think that that's Christianity, that if Jesus Christ was here, that's what he would do. So we're a Christian nation, so we want all the other nations to have the freedoms that we have, no oppression, no, no, no discrimination, no this, no that. Everybody just gets along, and of course, that is man trying to bring in a false kingdom um, that he'll never do. And the um, truth of the matter is, I mean, we like capitalism. I like capitalism. I don't want to live under communism rule. I mean, I, mean, I, I, I wouldn't. I, you know, who would? I mean, uh, I, I like capitalism. I think capitalism is, is uh, for me, is the way I, if I have my choice, I'll stay with being, being capitalism. But, uh, it get, but only for one reason. It gives me the freedom to do for God what I need to do. I'm not in the illusion that capitalism is any different than communism. And um, you know what? Let me tell you something. We get on this thing about, well, what Putin does in all the countries that he's done. Let me tell you something. Our government through the CIA has killed more leaders of the more cruel countries and disposed and outset more countries and, more, and, and, and nations than you could shake a stick at. But because it's underneath and nobody ever knows about it, it goes through some black hole budget someplace for the black ops and you never read about it. And we read about Putin. We think that he's bad and we're good. I mean, let me tell you something. 
we get on, and I'm, I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just putting it on an even playing field. <laughs> when we got, when we had, when World, in World War II, the, the Nazis, they murdered six, eight million Jews, no question about it. Terrible atrocity, no problem. And we wanted to make them the bad guy, which they were. And we wanted to punish them, which we should have. And we wanted them to take an account, which we should have. But when America repatriated all of the Russian prisoners, over one million of them, that were in German POW camps, and we liberated those camps and we put them and took them, they were begging not to go back to Russia because Stalin's philosophy was that once you were held captive, if you didn't die to the death, once you were a prisoner, you got tainted and you would be a threat to communism. They knew that they were liberated from the camp. Americans had them. They begged, they screamed and cried, and at gunpoint had to be forced across the, or the bridge going into Russian control. And every one of those guys were killed 15 minutes after they got across that bridge because Stalin's program was that we cannot allow you to bring what you have been tainted in your mind of communism, so we will kill you. And we knew that. Because of politics, we sent them along. And then the Germans are the bad guys, which they are. But we're the bad guys, too. We are. I mean, it was a thing where it was when, when, when England wanted to give the land back to the Jew, it was Churchill and Woodrow Wilson that, that reneged on the Belfort Declaration. And we're the bad guys? Are they the bad guys? We're the bad guys, too. I'm saying, the book of Ecclesiastes lists, I don't know how many ologies of man uh, are the government structures that man comes up with and it's all under the sun and it's all vanity because there's only one government that's going to be the government that's going to be the right government and that's when Jesus Christ comes back and sets up the government and it won't be it won't be capitalism it'll be an iron righteous rule of Christ on the throne with a big stick that'll beat you senseless if you don't do what's right And right now in churches, he doesn't have that big stick, so he gives you a little stick. It will beat you senseless with the Word of God to keep you right. You're going to get beat senseless one way or the other, so you might as well enjoy it. That's why my name growing up was Bobby Little Sticks. <laughs> you guys are too gullible. All right, let's hold up there. Can I have 